If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. I would say I've probably pitched ideas, often repeating the same idea to multiple companies. If you counted the total amount of submissions of ideas and pitches, it's got to be 30,000, 40,000. Welcome to Creative Elements, a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host, Jay Klaus. Let's start the show. Hello, my friend. Welcome back to another episode of Creative Elements. Thanks for hanging with me over the last few weeks as we re-aired some of our past classic episodes. Mallory and I had a great honeymoon visiting Dublin, Copenhagen, London, and Paris. And it was really nice to have a few weeks away from the keyboard. And there's a lesson here that I want to share, by the way. Before going on the honeymoon, I had a lot of anxiety about not putting out new episodes for a few weeks. I was feeling a lot of momentum with the show heading into the honeymoon, and so it was scary to potentially put that on pause. But you know what? Ultimately, no one really cares. I'm back this week with a new episode. I'll be back next week with a new episode and every week for the foreseeable future after that. And pretty soon, no one will even remember that I took a few weeks off. And at the same time, I was able to spend some high quality time with my wife recharge, and really enjoy myself. So if you're feeling like you really need some time to rest and recover, I would encourage you to do it. It's summertime here in North America and you deserve a break. Speaking of taking some quality time to enjoy yourself, I'm taking us back in time a little bit today. We're going back to the 90s in a game that I'm sure you recognize as something we did to hang out and enjoy ourselves. <laughs> That wasn't my voice. That was some. That was the voice of Boppet, and that is many years after the start of when I started creating games and pursuing play as as a passion. If you're a '90s kid like me, you're probably very familiar with the Boppet game and the noises that you just heard. And the voice you just heard was Dan Klitzner 
the inventor of Bop It and a whole bunch of other Bop It games since 1996. There are more than a dozen different versions of Bop It, including Bop It Extreme, Bop It Blast, Bop It Tetris, even Bratz Bop It. If you're also like me, you've probably thought very little about the actual mechanics behind how a game like Bop It comes to the market. And as we'll hear in the interview, Bop It was really a unique concept that came from one core insight. So Bop It really was this idea, unlike Simon or something like that, how do you do something that literally gets people to move and interact where it's fun to watch them? We'll expand quite a bit on that idea in this conversation with Dan, but here's what's so interesting to me about games in the territory we cover in this episode. Dan invented and patented the Bop It concept, but it was licensed and commercialized by the gaming company Hasbro. Until recently, there really wasn't a direct-to-consumer route in game creation. You really had to work with these major companies like Hasbro, Mattel, or Parker Brothers. They're almost like the music labels of gaming. Now, I know game invention is a totally different type of creator than we typically talk about on this show. But Bop It has sold over 30 million units worldwide. And when you have the opportunity to speak to a living legend, you take it. In the toy industry, are you on like the Mount Rushmore of toys? Is this also like one of the biggest hits if I were to go and ask Hasbro or Mattel or Parker Brothers? Yeah, probably is. Over the last 25 years, maybe Furby and Bop It are seen as two of, from the 90s anyway, two products that lasted. You know, there's, there's not a lot of evergreens and I didn't know that when I started this. I actually had a bunch of products. When, when Bop It came out, everyone's like, oh, that's awesome. Maybe we'll get three years out of it. Maybe three years. And I, I was like so disappointed. Like, why would it ever go away? I, you know, I was so naive. Like, Mousetrap's still here. Candyland's still here. What do you mean three years? And yes, so again, long answer to the question. It is a bit of a Mount Rushmore if I was a songwriter, it would definitely be the song people know me for best. Although some people might like some of my other games better. Bop It isn't Dan's only commercial success. He tells me that he's had hundreds of his ideas go to market and he's continued to evolve with the times. Today, he has a thriving TikTok account with nearly 500,000 followers. So in this episode, we talk about how Dan broke into the world of game creation, how the game industry works, the difference between licensing and selling direct to consumer, and how Dan's passion for play is what keeps him going all these years later. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode as you listen. You can find me on Twitter at jklaus or on Instagram at creativeelements.fm. Tag me, say hello, let me know that you're listening. And now, let's talk to Dan. I was always attracted to three-dimensional games like Mousetrap, you know, games kerplunk, things that were very mechanical. Uh, I also loved, probably, if someone asked me my favorite game, I would say, surprisingly, Cribbage, which is, you know, the simplest, and not really simple, but I love card games, and I love a group of people sitting together playing cards because I think it's actually, in many ways, the most interactive type of game. Compa- you know, it, the people, what, the, what it makes the people do is more interactive sometimes than games that are more gadgety. So I grew up playing lots of card games with family, was lucky to have parents that played with me. And yet I w- was extremely, you know, into three-dimensional things from early on. When did your plan become, I want to start developing this stuff? Because, you know, we talked to a lot of creators on the show 
who even today when they say I want to, you know, pursue this thing I'm building on Instagram or TikTok, it's hard for their parents to wrap their head around. I would imagine even back then creating games wasn't really a well-known or predictable or believable career path. So how did that work? Yeah, I guess it wasn't. However, I was creating games from the time I was six for my family to play with. Like it just, I just was something I loved doing and making up different rules and things like that. But it really started for me. I was very, I drew a lot. I, I worked with my hands a lot as a kid. I played with a lot of like everyone would, you know, Lego, things like that. But I, I really tended towards that, but I did, I did draw an awful lot. And I used to draw things like, you know, monsters and crazy contraptions and stuff that a kid would draw. That really led me towards, I think, inventing in the way of new things or inventing something, something new within a drawing. But I started to go down this path of not really knowing what I wanted to do and sort of ended up finding after a couple of years of engineering college, which I didn't like at all, industrial design. And so I didn't even know that that existed. So in terms of how did I know, I, I don't know. I just didn't think of games as a profession at all. I just loved making them. But I also loved making stuff. And as I found out what industrial design was, I think just fast forwarding, you can imagine a lot of the games I've created are literally industrial design meets game. You know, Boppet is really an object, an ergonomic object, very different than other things that existed before. But if you think back to Kerplunk or Mousetrap or these games that I was really influenced by, I think it, I didn't think of it at the time, but it really is sort of that mix of the two passions that I had. Yeah, I'm trying to think of other geometric game examples around that time because Mousetrap, Kerplunk, those are both more so board games probably than like a physical object as a game, wouldn't you say? I mean, a board game is a physical object, but it seems like a different category. Yes. Well, I think it depends on the time. If you think those are a category, a board game, the idea that that a game is sort of the the thing we do as <laughs> a whole thought I have on why do we play, we can go down that rabbit hole. But, you know, to me, it's the connector, you know, with friends and family, you can play. Why do we play games? What do we what do we get out of them? And so a board game or anything that we play together is it's also different than like a video game that you play, you know, often by yourself or solitaire. You know, there's different reasons we play. But for me, it was about imagining how to connect people. What's the thing that I would, I think I was always driven by, what's the next thing that would get people together and connecting and and remembering that evening or that day, like, ah, oh, that was, wasn't that great when we played such and such. So I think that feeling of me thinking back to, boy, those were sure happy times when I was sitting there without any other agenda other than to play with those friends. I think it's a really important part of our mind that isn't triggered by many other things is what state of mind we're in when we play. And that's why I think so many people have very warm memories of that. There isn't, you know, even with family, sometimes it takes all the other agendas off the table and that's what you're, you're allowed to do and be creative in a way together within that. Great games help you sort of express yourself. So I think, you know, again, the long route to what else was there, there was Simon, 
uh, which mm. was more of a three-dimensional, if you think of a game that I think was big in the 70s or 80s, then there's things like the Slinky or a Yo-Yo, or they're more like toys. They don't right. aren't a rule. They don't have rules, as you think. So I think I just felt uh, driven to this idea of, of, I don't, you know, like a lot of times when you're creative, I was looking for things that were three-dimensional. I was trying to, I had already licensed some other board game type of ideas to some of the toy companies. And when I started working on Bop It, it was really intentionally, how can I make an object that is a game that makes people move more physically? I think that was one of my my ideas early on was just sort of this thing that I had heard throughout throughout other people within the toy industry, just that a, a great game makes the people more interactive. Like I said, cards are a great example. The card makes the people do stuff. And it's more entertaining to watch each other than to watch the game. We're all interacting rather than something where your fingers, your thumbs are, you know, working on an LCD game or a video game. That That is literally where it came out of as a toy company saying, handheld LCD games are not selling well. Do you have any other ideas? And it sort of was my first impulse was what's sort of the opposite of that? What is it that that those games don't do that I've always been interested in games about? So I didn't really think that maybe that literally at the time, but but it was all that that was a common thread. So if that helps sort of understand where the you know this all came from. Yeah, I have next to no knowledge about this industry. So that's going to become like super obvious as we go through this, right? But I'm thinking in categories, I can picture board games, card games, video games, and there's like the toy realm, which don't necessarily have to be games, but can be. And then there's like balls, which are a part of a larger rule-based game. Are those like, am I thinking about the categories kind of right? Are there other categories that I'm missing here when it comes to creating games? Probably many subcategories, you know, anyone who's super into games would sort of rattle off all these genres and things of what many of which might, you know, but things like LARPing and game, you know, role play games, things yeah. where you be really become immersed in the game. There's, you know, there's so many layers of games. And so that's why I kind of always been interested. What does that mean? What's the difference between a game and a toy? I think often people will try to categorize the game as sort of a, an agreement. I like to call it. It's the agreement of people, well, um, again, multiplayer type games, games that are meant to be played with with people. To me, it's an agreement that those people have that they're going to suspend sort of the outside world for a certain time and spend that time with each other via this game as sort of the the medium that, that makes it okay for them to be silly and playful because the rules are this is what you're supposed to do. So there's a little bit of that balance between that and then allowing the creativity of of fun things to pop out. Like to me, charades, you think about how simple that is. It's, you know, you're trying to communicate to someone something and it's always funny. You know, like, why is it funny? It's funny because it's funny to watch someone struggle with trying to communicate with just their hands and everyone's making funny guesses. And so it's all about those people in the room. That's, you know, because we've all agreed we're going to do this together. And as a bigger umbrella, I think that's important to know about games in those experiences is that that agreement is only possible because people usually do it in what we call their free time, right? When I say, what do you do with your free time? And well, people can do a lot of things. They can go fishing, they can 
you know, do this, draw, do, you know, who with their hobbies. But when you say, so what's the value of your free time? That's a really interesting question to me because mm-hmm. I know the value of my paid time. Everyone knows I'm being paid, you know, $12 an hour, $50 an hour, a million dollars a day, whatever it matters, you know, some celebrity, they still have a price for the thing that they're paid to do in general, you know, and that's different than when someone says, so what's your free time worth? And, and my theory is it's infinite time value. Your free time is actually has no price tag. It is yeah. all you have is your time. So free time is the most valuable thing you have. And when you say to someone, hey, should we play a game for an hour? And they agree with their incredibly valuable free time, say, yeah. Now, it's the fact that it is frivolous. Like, if there isn't, I, I really believe more that because you say, we're going to do something that has no redeeming value in terms of we're not doing this to learn or to make money or do this. or We really are doing it because we want to spend time together. To me, that's the most powerful thing is we've just spent our most valuable time together doing what we used to consider a frivolous thing. But the point was, it was because we wanted to spend that time together. So I'm driven by that idea. Like, what's the next thing I can create that'll make people want to do that? That's such a good frame. I love that. You know, you're talking about the the toy company was saying these handheld LCD games aren't selling very well. We're talking early 90s, probably. Is this like original Game Boy? Yeah, original Game Boy. Or this was actually literally the little cheap handheld LCD games that you would get that would have, you know, like Masters of the Universe and Marvel and the, I don't know, like whatever those little games were that, you know, Pong originally might have been translated to. Again, a little handheld game you play with your thumbs that was, you know, $10. And there was a huge, you know, wave of those by a company called Tiger Electronics back in the 80s, 90s. And they specifically called, I'd done some other games for them, and they said, what's next? And of course, the first thought was, what's the next innovative LCD game? They called that the category, not, but it was an LCD handheld game, if you think of that. It wasn't a board game. So my thought was, well, what the, what, what could I do to make an LCD game more physically interactive? That's sort of where this all came from is, I actually started the ideas for Bop It with LCD screens in a device that you had to swing around and bop and do things to the character on the screen. But moving the thing around, you know, just you can imagine it was like, huh, I wonder. It was really flipping it backwards to say, well, maybe instead of you animating the character on the screen, the toy is animating you and you become the entertainment. And that's kind of the same, as I said, the link to charades, all those things are literally you, t- you turn, turn yourself into the entertainment. Don't, don't make it about the thing on the screen. After a quick break, Dan and I talk about how he broke into the gaming industry and how game creators today can sell their games. And later we talk about licensing and royalties. So stick around and we'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Last year, my wife and I started talking about her joining the business full time. This is a huge decision, not just for the business, but for our marriage. My wife, being the very smart and thoughtful woman that she is, suggested that we proactively sign up for therapy as a couple to help us communicate better before we started working together. It really helped us have better language to describe how we're feeling and listen to one another, which generally lowers the intensity of any conversation. 
Now, I had never been in therapy before, but here's something that I didn't expect. It didn't just help our dialogue, but it helped my inner monologue too. The way I understand my own experience has changed based on the tools that I got from therapy. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, so it's convenient, it fits your schedule, and you can be in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a short questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. They even make it easy to switch therapists if it doesn't feel like a fit. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com creator today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash creator. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters, featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. Podcast Movement helps podcasters of all experience levels create, grow, and profit from their show. It's suitable for beginners, but you'll also have the opportunity to meet some of the biggest names in the industry. I've been to several Podcast Movement events, and not only is the programming incredible, but the culture and vibe are incredible too. It attracts thoughtful, empathetic, and collaborative people, which makes sense when you think about the medium of podcasting. Podcast Movement hosts two events per year. The first just wrapped up, but their flagship conference is happening August 19th through the 22nd in Washington, D.C. Attendees have the freedom to choose their own adventure across several different stages throughout the four-day event, not to mention dozens of amazing networking events, parties, and the expo hall floor. Tracks include podcast creation, video and live streaming, industry professional, plus several stages of curated programming from some of the top companies in podcasting. It's truly a unique event, and if you are a podcaster, I cannot recommend it enough. Right now, tickets are available at super duper early bird pricing. And as a Creator Science listener, you can save $50 on top of that by visiting podcastmovement.com science. That's podcastmovement.com slash science. Welcome back to my conversation with Dan Klitzner. We started this interview by looking at the gaming industry as a whole. And now that we have a better understanding of how the gaming world works, I wanted to dig deeper into Dan's personal journey. Well, I, I started out in probably 1986, around then, maybe a little earlier. Uh, I, I was doing freelance industrial design. I had gone to Art Center College of Design in Pasadena, thought I would go on to create, you know, the next best toaster, blender, teapot, you know, all the things that industrial designers want to do. I had no interest in architecture, anything. I really loved tactile ergonomic things that you held. I loved the sculptural quality of them. So I loved everything about industrial design and had a bunch of freelance clients that I started to develop. I also did illustration on the side, like architectural illustration, since there were no computers to render this stuff. They needed people to draw them. <laughs> and I was a good drawer. So I had all these freelance things. And I, I answered an ad in the San Francisco Chronicle by, for a toy company that said freelance toy designer wanted. And it was for a little company called Discovery Toys, which sort of sold toys like Avon, or, uh, like Instead of Tupperware or Ava and parties, it was sort of like Tupperware, like a parents would have people over and, you know, sort of sell direct sales like that. So they had never had their own products. They were always importing products and they were looking for someone to design some proprietary products. So they became one of my freelance clients. I started to design 
all sorts of things, much more preschool toys. In fact, some are still around today, some some very classic things that were very, you know, from an industrial designer point point of view, European looking in my mind. You know, these are not like the crap that we see, you know, here. These are like these fine European toys. So they like that. So that sort of, if you look back, a lot of them were very Boppet-y. They were rattles and things that you shake and meant for little kids with twirly things and spinny things. And I, I much later kind of made the correlation like, God, oh, that's just, I've always had this thing about tactile stuff that you touch with your hands, even what a kid might do. So that sort of led toward knowing about the toy industry and getting more and more involved. And because I was just freelancing for them, I wasn't obligated. I wasn't an employee. So I started to hear that you could pitch ideas to the toy industry. And I, because I had always loved these games, you know, mousetrap, things like that. I thought that sounds cool and started to look into how, how can I find out how to do that? So spent some research, looked into it and eventually, you know, met a lot of the toy companies and, and found out how to do this. Wow. You went from wanting to build a better mousetrap to wanting to build a better mousetrap. <laughs> I've never thought of that. That's right. Uh, I don't know if I built a better mousetrap, but yes, I, I built something that, well, when you say that, when, when Boppet eventually came out and I, I saw the brand Milton Bradley on it, or it was originally Parker Brothers, then Milton Bradley. Just for me, when I talk about how passionate I was about games when I was younger, I remember the boxes of all the games I played with, with that brand, Milton Bradley, Parker Brothers. And it was so magical to me. Like, you know, I remember these cardboard boxes and they'd be on the shelf and who, I don't know what awareness we have when we're younger about what a brand really is, but I knew that it was good. I knew that these were things that made everyone happy. And I got so excited the first time I saw the package when the, when the product actually came out, it hit me like, wait, I created one of those things that someone else is going to play with and have these warm and fuzzy memories. And it, and it says Milton Bradley on it, you know? So yes, mousetrap in a way it was the direct correlation. Like, wow, I can't believe I, I did something that's like one of those things that seems so iconic. When I think about toys and again, next to no knowledge here, I do think Milton Bradley, Parker brothers, Hasbro, are these the giant, gorillas in the room and there's only like a couple of really big concentrated powers or is it a very fragmented tons of different gaming companies type of industry it used to be a little more well actually there used to be even more companies than you realize ideal toys whammo uh, you might remember these kind of names you know um things that mattel of course and mm. that has for many years mattel and hasbro were sort of battling, but it wasn't always Hasbro. Milton Bradley, Parker Brothers, Hasbro is one gorilla. Now, that's those have all been combined into Hasbro. And over the years, Hasbro bought Parker Brothers, you know, kind of in the, when I started getting the toys, they were just in the process of acquiring them. So uh, there's been a lot of mergers, but there's also been a lot of really exciting new companies, especially with all the new ways to market, you know, social media, things like the game Exploding Kittens, for instance, which is now a company that's doing some great stuff that launched through Kickstarter. What do you meme, which is a, a company doing you like these are sort of the fresh new companies. And in the middle there is a company that's now about 25 or 30 years old called Spin Master, who has become 
the number three, if not the number two toy company. It's these three guys from Canada that started it with just a couple products and then just were so innovative. They, they, they really relied on toy inventors for their line and built this incredible company. So that's today a kid might think of them more like Hasbro Mattel because of Bakugan, if people know that one, or Hatchimals, these things that hatch out of, out of eggs. So it depends what era you're from, I think, as to who you think is the gorilla in the room. But uh, the short answer is there's still, you know, those are still the bigger mass companies, but there's probably 50 other medium companies that are extremely important and super innovative. I ask because, one, I'm curious how this connects to your story, but then also to the listener today, the path forward for creating and commercializing a game did you have to go through one of these bigger, more established players back, you know, when you're creating Boppet, or was was there an ability to self-create and self-distribute back then? I've never self-distributed or created till I am doing th- literally this year. I'm working on a project that is basically a Kickstarter that I'm going to be doing, kind of to celebrate the 25th year of Boppet as a give back. To be honest, but I've always been warned against it in a way because I love creating lots and lots of things and the best path for a creator is really to get to know all the toy companies and even if they're small uh, some of the other hits like Perplexus is a game that I, I co-developed it's a it created with a who's become a friend a incredible uh, it was basically the spherical labyrinth that you I don't know if you're aware of it you you run a marble through a maze that's inside of a sphere. So Perplexus has become a pretty big line. That started with a pretty small company who then eventually sold and things like that. Now it's with Spin Master. But though that wouldn't maybe have happened with a bigger company. So the opportunities, one, to answer the first part of the question, it's kind of matchmaking. You know, if you're going to say, I have a bunch of ideas or one idea, which is hard if you just have one, but if you have a lot of ideas, your your day-to-day is spent creating the ideas, prototyping, and building all these relationships, figuring out who's looking for what, when. Because you have your ideas, which you're in love with, of course, and then you have to say, be realistic, like which company wants them and why. And they're all different. You know, it's in it's not just in the eye of the beholder. They all have different strategies, they have different volumes, different distribution. You know, so really the success is to make sure you meet a lot of them and the doors open up pretty easily if you're consistent. It's not so much about that. It's the endurance to withstand the failure of many, many <laughs> attempts before hitting on things. However, building your own. So it's tempting to say, I'm just going to do this myself. And today with Kickstarters and things, it is much easier, I think, for someone to figure that out than it used to be. But you know, there's a few people that didn't want to be, I'm not going to like, you know, inventing is licensing your idea. When you talk about starting your own idea, that's like all the logistics of making, selling, marketing, you know, the headaches of running a business is a very different, if you're a creative person that doesn't want to do that, it's, it's you know, people have been brought down by that. But there's also people who have completely made something successful when they just said, I'm going to make this myself, probably throughout and they, then they become a toy company. So that's so, it's not, I never advise someone don't make your own product because if that's that person that just loves it and does it and creates this, this hit because they're thinking purely about their own idea. But I do say, and I never say to people, 
go out there and invent. It's really easy, and you can just sell your idea. Like, it's hard. It's very hard. There's a lot of luck involved with a lot of perseverance and talent that you need as well. Do you know how many published games you've made? You mean how many have sold or how many titles? How many titles? How many have like gone all the way through the process of like, this is released to the public and gotten people's hands? I don't have the exact number. I, I mean, but I've been doing this for almost 30 years and I, there's at least five or six a year that come out, sometimes 10, you know, little games, little things like, remember, there's a lot of little companies out there that'll do something. It might get published. It might, it might get dropped immediately. I'd say there's probably over a hundred things that have, you know, done pretty well over the years. There might be 300 that have, you know, had a chance. I, I really should do a count at some point. That was my next question was going to be, how many concepts do you think? Oh, concepts. I've done, I know that it's, it's almost 4,000 concepts that have been pitched, many of them multiple times to multiple companies. So, you know, I would say I've probably pitched ideas often repeating the same idea to multiple companies. If you counted the total amount of submissions of ideas and pitches, it's got to be 30, 40,000 submissions. And that's just over time, you know, your, your, your game is trying to catch who wants this idea when. Because the, the ideas you give up on are often the one, the heartbreak. Like, uh, there's an idea right back here. People can't see it. Uh, I don't know if you can see it up behind me. It's called Gleeps. It's a little LCD alien that I did. One of my first ideas, it was how to use an LCD screen before Bop It, when I was interested in LCD games and things. And it was how do you make a pet out of an LCD? How do you you know, put it inside of a little container and it had this whole cute idea of a little bit of language and stuff. And I showed it to everyone when I was first meeting toy companies and nobody, ah, how do we do that? Oh, you can do that with an LCD? Like they were so old school, they didn't even understand it. I just didn't know enough companies, but I showed it around quite a bit. And then I, for, and I did a lot of work on it, proto, uh, stop motion animation, really envisioned no one had done anything. And if it sounds familiar, eight years later, Tamagotchi came out, which was a pretty popular little thing. It was basically LCD pets that did almost exactly what I had, little alien creatures. So that's this, this, that's why that gleeps thing is right there, <laughs> little gleeps. And, you know, it was about not showing, giving up on it and not showing it to the right company at the right time. And that's probably most inventors will tell you the biggest heartbreak is their, their closets are filled with things that were really right on. They just didn't find the right home for it. So that's why you have to be willing to show things to the, you know, keep looking because it really hurts to be right at the wrong time. If I'm considering trying to license an idea to a gaming company, what do I need to bring to the table for them to be interested in it? And then if they say yes, what do they ultimately take off my plate? You know, like what, are, what am I responsible for creating as the licensor when I'm going into one of these conversations? Well, you know, there's a few things that would probably be consistent. One is today having a prototype that, you know, is pretty well along, you know, sometimes people sold things that are kind of a loose idea, but it's pretty well defined. And a great video, think of how you would be attracted to something. Like if you ever watch Shark Tank or you <laughs> watch, you know, uh, see someone pitch an idea or a commercial, 
if you've ever seen a commercial, that's kind of what you're trying to do is you want to build a concise video that really gets people excited. In fact, the video and how I sold Boppet was actually on a video first is the one thing that can be consistent over and over again. If you pitch an idea and people say, we love it, let's show it to, you know, the president and you're not, oh, no, no, we'll do it. You know, because often you're not, you, you don't get past the gatekeepers often. You're just, you're just there with the people that are the scouts for new ideas. Then they've got to do their own great job of pitching it. But if you have a really good video that is short, you know, one minute to two minutes that really makes people excited and that, and something they go, let's see that again. I want to watch that again. Oh my God. I love it when it does that. I love it. I love that anti gravity part. You know, whatever it is that you can convince people, you can be your own judge of, wow, I would buy that, you know, versus someone who goes into all this detail. It's like, you've just lost me. You know, it's got to be, it's got to be to the point and the features that are new should be just like a great commercial, it doesn't have to be super slick. It just has to get across the thing that you, you know, you think is saleable. But you probably also need a pretty good prototype these days. It used to be a little easier to sell concepts on their merit like that. But to get past that point of, hey, we're interested. So then at that point, the process is kind of like a movie script. You know, if you think about a writer selling something, somehow people relate to that. It's you, you can get, uh, if a company really likes something, they will option it from you. They'll pay you some money to take it off the table so you don't pitch it to other people. And that's for a certain period of time where you can then, they're going to be saying, we need 30 days to think about it. And if you can, you get them to pay for that 30 days, a small amount. And then if it gets through all those things, eventually you'd be negotiating a license agreement where they pay you a bigger advance on hopeful future royalties. And then at that point, you could be not involved whatsoever. You can be, uh, since I'm an industrial designer, my partners are industrial designers and programmers. You know, I have two partners. We often are very involved in the development process. If not, that they just don't come out very well in our opinion. But that's not that common. It's much more common in this sort of inventing world to, if you get through that gate and you pitch and license it, that often they don't want you involved. They want to have their own execution and say, and about 50% of the time, you'll be very disappointed with what you do <laughs> with your idea. And that'll be, you know, and that's when people usually complain. And at some point that probably drives some people, I'm just doing it myself next time. You know, I don't know that's kind of the, the best I can explain the, the ups and downs of the process. I'm going to come back to the Boppet video here in a minute, but I asked this because I have a friend who's an inventor and I saw him go through the process of getting his prototypes made. And I know that the prototyping process can be pretty resource intensive to, you know, get molds made and have this stuff done. And I wondered how much someone needs to invest in like that level of prototyping before they pitch to potentially be licensed, or if you can kind of build this with household items to get the point across. The answer is yes. <laughs> As it usually is. <laughs> meaning, meaning it's all of the above, you know, you, you, it depends on the product. I think something when you're a serial inventor, like, you know, you learn what every time you have an idea, how should I present this? Does it need 3D? We do a lot of 3D printing, of course, like most people now, of which is amazing compared to what you used to have to do. But still, it's a lot of time and, you know, building. And so is this the kind of thing that's mechanical that's going to pop out and impress people with the way it transforms? 
if so, a little sketch of that may not do it. You probably need, you know, a cool 3D model that's done from 3D printing that if you have that and that's the key feature, then that's the right way to do it. Or I've sold like the idea for a Bop at Tetris, which was this, if people have had it, it's I think the best game I've ever designed because of the interface and the way it's physical. That was done with a stop motion video because mm -hmm. I needed to show how these little squares of light would move around while you, and I could have done it many different ways, but I just said, oh, I'm just going to test it out and see for myself if this works. So I used stop motion to represent these LEDs that were going on and off. And while I manipulated the model in my hand, and it was so convincing, that's literally what sold the idea. So I didn't know that, you know, like, so that was a totally another approach. Then you can do, you know, like you said, animation or, or videos that, make it look like something's working, but it really isn't. You dub in the audio, you do this. Like if it's a board game and you're trying to sell people on this board game, you probably have to build the game, prototype it, you know, have all the cards, have all the content, you know, so that's something that's harder to fake because people will want to play the game. Or if it's a deck, you know, a lot of card games, people prototype them much easier because you can just get those printed. So that's why I say the answer is yes. You, you have to kind of figure out the best way for the lowest price to get your idea across. When we come back, we talk about licensing versus direct-to-consumer and Dan's approach to using TikTok, right after this. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, welcome back. One of the creator revenue models we haven't talked about much on this show is licensing and royalties. It's actually a big part of my business. I have created seven courses for LinkedIn Learning, and those courses were made under a publishing agreement. I was paid in advance, and now I receive royalties based upon the performance of those courses. Every year around Christmas time, we see headlines about how much money Mariah Carey makes for her song, All I Want for Christmas Is You. And for Dan, he receives royalties on the sale of Bop It. So I asked him to talk to me about his opinion on licensing a game versus selling direct to consumer. It's great when it works. <laughs> you know, the flip side is there's plenty of things that you work on for two years. You're all excited about when you're doing royalty based, you know, deals. Someone else is absolutely in charge of your, you know, your pipeline. And when they decide, you know, 
It's just not selling enough. You know, think of these companies as having multiple products. There isn't an infinite amount of products that can be sold. There has, they have to make choices. So if your product isn't really worth the, the, the advertising, the shelf space, whatever it might be, they drop it. And, you know, that's why I say most products last now less than three years, maybe one year, you know, so the royalties may not last very long, especially in toys. Now in other types of businesses, you know, you'll always hear those stories. And of course, in songwriting, you know, because people like hearing songs over and over again, and they're nostalgic, I suppose, once a song makes it, it kind of doesn't go away. But most products do go away, or it's very difficult to kind of hold on to that stream. So I don't know, you know, it, like a, most people just feel lucky when they get a, a few years out of something. But it's a great business model compared to, but, but it's also, like you're saying now, with all the direct-to-consumer methods, I'm very, very interested in, especially with social media. That's I've been specifically went on to social media the last year just to sort of build an audience directly to the people who are Boppet fans who want to talk about Boppet, celebrate Boppet, share Boppet stories, and do goofy things with Boppet on social media, and talk to people, what do you want? What do you think's next? And come up with some products that I'm trying to sell or will be selling direct to consumer as much to kind of create that loop, that feedback loop and experience what it's like to sell something direct. Even if it's a very low volume, I'm pretty excited about that. So I think it's, but there is a downside. The royalty thing is, is so great when it works, but you can, when the faucet gets turned off, it's, it's, you just feel so helpless. On the social media point you just made, your TikTok is great. You have 421,000 followers. Uh, did you teach yourself and do you manage all that yourself too? Uh, yeah, I, I, it's probably pretty obvious. <laughs> I'm glad you like it. It's me having fun. I mean, honestly, I love it because one, I love getting the feedback from people on just, you know, these people are really inventive. And when I, I'll throw out failures, I didn't realize some of the most popular things is when I, I say, why do you think this flopped? And I just love people are so good at the comments. And it's like, wow, they're right. You know, like that's probably makes sense because toys and games are designed for people and the people who play them are the best judges. But it's so funny how, uh, you know, I, I love that part. I love that it's a, an incredible way to get direct feedback with people. I create stuff. I'm learning, you know, the tools of it and just enjoying that. It is, it is kind of, uh, addictive, you know, to kind of put something out. Oh, people really like that. And so I'll do more like that. And then you do something like that and they don't like it at all. So it's a very, it is a little bit of a moving target. And uh, as you say, I have a lot of followers probably for what I am or it's a lot, but you know, as you know, you can be someone who shows a, uh, a gecko walking around their terrarium and have 2 million followers because you put funny music to it. So I have, you have to be humble about uh, what you're, <laughs> and we just saw what there's some gecko on there that someone keeps showing me. It's like 20 million views. Like that's it. It sticks its tongue out. And, <laughs> you know, so it humbles you a little as to what, what people really want on social media. So it's more important to just stick to, here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to share. I, here's what I, I want to engage with people on and be playful with people about. And eventually that becomes, I hope, like if I do a Kickstarter, you now have a little bit of a base to sort of get the word out. Do you think of TikTok as a game? Totally. It is a game, you know? I mean, the, the game of doing it, it's also, it's entertainment, but it's a little bit of a game. It's kind of like fishing. You know, you're, you're throwing something out there and you're seeing if you can 
catch some attention. I find it more just like a super creative outlet with, with instant feedback. Like think about most creators, like they'll work on something for a long time. You go through this whole process, especially licensing. It's, it's sometimes two years till it actually hits the market. And then you're waiting and waiting and finally, oh, people kind of like it, but blah, blah, blah. You know, here's a thing that you can have an idea like, oh, I want to talk about this and see what people think. And in an hour, you kind of know what people think. It's, I think it's totally. fantastic for that. And if you think of the things you create as just little inventions, like I'm going to try this, try that. And every day the, the tools get better and the collaborations of people, yeah, you know, it's kind of infinite creativity. If that's your goal is how do I really work in a visual medium? And like I said, not so much for the, the clout that you might have, but for the creativity of it, I think it's pretty special. Of the original Boppet inputs, uh, this is a question from Ashby on Twitter. He said, of the original inputs, bop it, pull it, twist it, spin it, flick it, do you have a favorite? Well, those are not the original. The original is just bop it, twist it, pull it, since he, that's a bop it extreme. Uh, because, and a lot of people who don't, it's funny how many, this is this is the one I'm holding up, is the original, right? Bop it, twist it, pull it. That it's funny how many people think that's not the original because it's like, and then there's a whole group 10 years later that there's this white bop it that was when it was totally re relaunched. They think that's the original. They go, what is that blue thing? So it's really what you think is the original bop it, but this is the original, this one right here, bop it, just to pull it. But anyway, of the bop it extreme inputs, um, I think that the one that, you know, like I had a lot of ideas for Boppet Extreme when it came out. Like, what should they be? And I actually didn't, I didn't want it to have Twisted and Pull It on it because they had been in the original. So I had uh, Squeeze It and I think it was Shake It. It was Poke It. There's been a bunch of other things, you know. But they all have to work, just I know this is off the point of the question, but the reason for all those and why they work is that it's the access of motion to make you move three-dimensionally. What makes Bop It different than an LCD game, which is in which is used in one dimension, you know, with just your thumbs, or Simon, which was one dimension, it was in one action, is that you, if you see it, you know, you're pulling, you know, you're twisting, and you're bopping, they're all, they're X, Y, Z, right? X, Y, Z. Mm. And that's what it, why it messes with your brain is because you have to sort of convert this command into a three-dimensional action, not just the motion of twisting, but it is perpendicular to the flow. Like that was the part that was really intentional. And so when the flick it and the spin it came out, they were intentionally trying to do things that were also a thing you didn't do with the other actions. I would still put, you know, I think maybe twisted is the one that I, I <laughs> the most tactile because if you, when you do it, it's the thing that was least like a game maybe that existed. And I love the sound of it. You know, when you hear the, the, this sound right here, that little, it just sounds like you're twisting, you know, someone's neck or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> has that sense of something really satisfying about twisting and having that sound. So long answer to, but I think it's important to know why are there five things and why were they selected? And it was very, very, uh, you know, thought through. And there's been a lot of other variations. Um, you know, one of the reasons it hasn't been copied very well is every time someone tries to do something else, they don't seem to work as well as the original moves. 
what's your what's your favorite input that never made it into one of the versions? I really like poke it, where you take your two fingers and you poke like three stooges style, you know, like there were these two circles and you had to you had to poke through the two holes. And I really wanted to put in the sound, you know, whoa, 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 like the, the whatever, the three stooges sound, you know, when they would poke each other in the eye. Like, you know, I got a point for you. Whoa, 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 whoa. You know, it's like I just kind of figured it more like a three stooges moment of these of these crazy things happening. It was in a mobile game. Um, we did a mobile game for Bop It that you did have poke it by putting two fingers. Uh, there was also pinch it that was there. And one of our favorites over the years when I've, we brainstormed is stroke it, which is, uh, I know people get excited there. It is a, uh, it was a, like you're, you're, stro- you're like a furry. It had a little furry uh, sensor oh, wow. on it. And when you pet the fur, you were stroking it. And I'm actually working on this thing that would have all of those in it. That's my next Kickstarter is an eight armed bop it that has like the four other things that I really wanted to put in a bop it. it it'll cost 120 bucks, but I'm hoping it'll be worth it. <laughs> I'm curious your experience with, you know, you had bop it, then you had bop it extreme and there have been other variations since then. I think you, you sometimes hear about like musicians who have this hit song and then they grow to hate that song and they don't want to play it at the concerts anymore. Did you have any reaction like that to bop it when you're creating these new toys and these new pitches? You know, it's a really, I'm kind of embracing that in a way, a little bit of a sense of, you know, someone introduced me, he invented Bop It, you know, a toy company. And I'm like, well, I've done quite a few other things. But on the other hand, like, great. I, I'm very proud of it. And it's because I've done an awful lot with it since then. It wasn't, you know, a lot of the other inventions, if you know Bop It Smash, Bop It Tetris, some of the other versions of it. Bop It Beats, they were completely other games that might have had a bit of a similarity, and only because I licensed them to Hasbro was it easier for them to market them under the Bop It name. So my only re- kind of a little bugs me a little when they go, oh, all you did was, you know, when you show all these Bop It ideas or Bop It games that you did, it's like there, there's several totally different inventions that have all been, it's almost like Bop It is the company, and those are products underneath it. So I'm proud of the ability to take music and games and really mix them into all these different variations that people enjoy. Like the, the Bop It Beats was like a turntableized version of Bop It. And the Tetris, I said, was really had nothing to do with the original Bop It, except that a voice was telling you what to do. And it had physical action in it. And also my two um, partners, Gary and Brian, are both musicians as well. And, you know, we really like riffing on musical toys. And so it just happens that they kind of go into that. So Bop It's been a great platform for it. There's actually so much more you can do with this concept of music in a game, call and response in a game. You know, I think I've seen a thousand YouTube and TikTok spoofs on Bop It, usually making some adult reference uh, you know, to it, which is always, uh, so that's a genre in itself in case anyone's listening out there and they think they're the first person to ever think of how a bop it might be construed as an adult <laughs> experience. You're not alone. In fact, 2006 Saturday Night Live, there's an, like they did a full Tina Fey and, and, you know, there's a full spoof on it that you can check out. 
Tired of the same old games? Then get ready for... Building game that's fun for the whole family. All you've got to do is boop it, twist it, honk it, squish it. Nice! Made for kids of all ages. Can I try? Yeah! Go for it, Dad. Boop it. <laughs> nice try, Dad. Maybe next time, Mr. Williams. Boop it. Squeak it. With nine different actions, the possibilities are endless. Honk it. Smush it. Boop it. But don't get one wrong. Boink it. Maybe next time, Jenna. <laughs> They've done, I think, three spoofs on it, usually with some adult reference. The Simpsons have done spoofs on it. Well, there's only one game we can play in the car over and over and over again. Bonk it. Oh, I'm sorry, kids. We lost the panneries for that. <laughs> no problem. A couple just rolled out from behind your seat. Bonk oh. it. Twist it. Smack it. Quack it. Quack it. Bonk it. Bop it. Quack it. Twist it. Bop it. Smack it. Quack it. Quack it. Bonk it. Twist it. Smack it. Bonk it. Twist it. Smack it. Quack it. Quack it. Bonk it. Twist it. Smack it. Quack it. Quack it. Bonk it. Twist it. Smack it. Quack it. Quack it. A lot of shows. That one's not. That one's just about it being like. I'm proud that it's the most, as I say, annoying game in the world. When you listen to it, it's really allowed me to create all these other things, and it's also been amazing that I'm still very passionate about it. And and I think there's so much more that could be done with that whole concept. And as music changes and interaction sensors change. It's very classic that a thing that tells you what to do and you do it can can expand to many, many different things. And in fact, on, on TikTok, that's something I enjoy most is when I'll sort of throw something out there and let people riff on Bop It. I've even taught classes for like preschool kids. And when I go in to talk about invention and I'll, you know, I'll do things like, let's look at the wall up there. There's a clock. How would you make that clock better? And we'll talk about, you know, they're very good problem solvers, even as young, young kids. But when I say... Do you guys want to invent your own boppet? Oh yeah, and then they'll you know they'll come up with it's like an easy thing for people to it something. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I don't take offense that it's a very expandable idea and that people enjoy riffing on it. And so I've kind of embraced it. That's why I mean, you know, boppet inventor is the handle. I'm just sort of going for it. That's why that's what brought the question forward is I saw you made that your handle on these social media accounts that you created, which made me think he's really embracing it, which I think is refreshing, frankly, because I do hear some people who have some level of success with something who begin to resent that thing or want to distance themselves because they're like, ah, yes, but all these other things too. But it seems like it could be a real powerful, immediate credibility builder. If you're, you know, you're posting something on TikTok and it's getting in front of someone else People are going to see the name Bop It Inventor and say, "I know, oh, I know Bop It," and that suddenly puts you in a different class than the other thirty TikToks I just swiped through. Yeah, I think so. But I, am, I, I did consider, or have still considered, uh, my other favorite name for my handle was, you know, so my name is Dan Klitzner, Dan K, and I like uh, my actually one of my son's friends he's in college was uh, saw me texting and they saw my name Dan Klitzner. And he thought it said dank listener. And he thought, that's a cool handle. 
And I thought, ooh, that is a cool handle. But I actually wanted to, it's Dan K. Inventions. I was thinking of changing it to Dank Inventions, since wow. that's Dan K. Inventions, of which Boppet is just one of my Dank Inventions. And I, I kind of, it's kind of growing on me. So at some point I may, I may switch over just because I think it's more universal to the idea of inventiveness and, and creativity. I, you know, it's a little broader and uh, this was good to start off, but I don't know. What do you think? Do you think you need to keep, you know, referencing that? No, no, especially not once you get to a, to the scale that you are. Um, I like dank inventions, especially because I think this podcast has the market cornered on dank listeners. So dank inventions is probably. Yeah. Dank listeners. I can't use that. You've already got that. (laughs) Okay. I had one last question, which is, you know, we, we kind of started this conversation talking about, we're getting calls from toy companies saying, Hey, these handheld LCDs aren't selling well, what's next? Sitting here in 2022, most games that I see are on like an iPad or a console or something. So what what does the game landscape look like today or what type of things are you looking at for the future now? Well, I think games are more popular than ever. There's many different platforms for them. You know, many more ways to do what I love to do from the very beginning. You know, I said I love sitting around the table with family and friends connecting. To me, games are the connector where you make this agreement to play together. Well, to me, the, the video game you know, market and the games, all these things, what, what's great is now everyone can do that. And, the, and you know, Fortnite and things like this where it's doing the same thing. They're connecting often with people they don't know, but a lot of times with people they know. And unlike um, the Switch and things like that that are sort of three-dimensional a little bit, you know, they're giving you that handheld feel, but you are making the connection and you're talking to people. So I like that positiveness about what games can do with people. So I think it's, there's a lot happening. I think people still like, like card games are in a way more popular than ever as well. So what does that tell you? It's not about all those electronics. It's about, yeah, I think it's right. about the connection and the experience. I, I don't really know where it's all going. And that way, I do I do like it. You know, I like that people value games and they value that time together, which we said I believe is infinite value, the value of your free time. And to choose it to play together is a really strong memory. You know, uh, to finish on that thought, because if you're if what you're really creating are memories with people you love or new people that you meet or whatever that is, you think back to how did you meet someone? When did you really connect with them? And if it was playing a game or hanging out together, playing the game together, you'll realize the value of a game was it's some of the most important memories and connections of your life. So I like that there's more of them. I'd like to be involved in continuing to help people do that. And I, I do a lot of games that are have nothing to do with electronics. You know, I'm working, I'm actually working on a pop it card game at the moment that's pretty cool uh, just to let you be the voice of Bop It. And it's a mm. lot of fun. So, yeah, I think that those, it's always changing. And I do see, though, the value of three-dimensional play. Like, people still love ergonomic, fidgety things as much as they love an electronic game. I think they kind of bounce back and forth of what they, what, what day they need what. There does seem to be kind of like a return to tabletop games right now, even though we're talking about the metaverse and going into complete digital places where I'm sure there will be games for the metaverse in the metaverse. And that's a whole other category of game design. It seems like there is a return to the physical world where people are saying, actually, I need more in real life experiences with my friends, with my family and things. So it's an interesting time for games. I feel. I I totally agree. I think 
Uh, that's what we do at night. If people come over to our house, you know, dinner, it, it, we make them, we say make them play games. It's never bop it. It's always, you know, or a game that I've invented. It's always some other cool game that we found. And I just truly love the laughing, the fun that, you know, there's a great game called Sheriff of Nottingham, which is basically like liar's dice turned into a game in, in a way. Uh, if you've ever, it's just, it's so simple. You're just trying to bluff what you have in this little pouch, you know, and get it past the sheriff. It's so simple, and yet it creates always this amazing experience together. You really couldn't get that through online or this. It's just you got to have to be there. And and that's there's so many games like that that I, I'm very passionate about playing. But uh, you were mentioning so, and what's coming from, from what I'm working on, most excited about, is what's called, right now we're calling it the Unibop. It's this single-button bop it that's basically like the no button or the easy button that you, you know, when you just hit, hit the one button, it started because I'm working on this book about his sort of the story of Bop It, the most annoying game, kind of like how I created the most annoying game of all time. Uh, you know, silly kind of stories along the way, but really a little bit of how to and, and ideas on creativity and, and toy invention. But the whole point of the book is that there, I said, it has to have a Bop It on the front of it. Can't have a book about Bop It without literally a bop it button. And it started out just, oh, it's just it's just gonna click. It'll be cool, three-dimensional bop it clicks. So I go, well, I wonder how much it would cost to make it actually work. Could it say bop it when you bop the cover? And I'd like to say, yeah, it could. I said, well, that's kind of a waste of, maybe could it really be a game? What if you could just bop it forever, you know? Would that be fun? And so I started to look into it and created, I started, really went way too far with it. And so here, you'll, you're going to be able to hear, I'll play it for you a little bit, and you'll you'll get why it's got two commands, bop it and don't bop it. But it says it in many different ways. And as you'll see it, if we are lucky, it'll sort of randomly say some weird thing. And the longer you play it, the more it unlocks. So here it is. Bop it. Bop it. Don't bop it. Bop it. It just hasn't said something yet. Let's see if it... Don't bop it. Bop it. Yow! Oh, wow, no. Try again. So when you fail, it says one of the iconic phrases. It's got like 50 things in it. You know, so the point is the more you play it, it'll keep unlocking. So you can go. So basically, it was as easy to make it go to... A hundred, well, more like a thousand. It's as easy to make it go to a thousand as to one million. So guess how high it goes? <laughs> a million. So if you want, you know, and it saves, there's a lot of things about it. It saves your score so you can do it over time. You don't have to do it all in one. But uh, yeah, it's, and as you go through, so in a way it was a celebration of the 25 years of Bop It because it's, it's got all these cameos and opportunities to unlock. So when you get to certain thresholds, You'll hear a voice congratulate you, you know, like, wow, you know, it'll say 250 and then someone, you know, ridiculous or some saying. And so the vision is eventually I'm going to be doing a Kickstarter on it and who the voices are that get unlocked. It's more of a game about 
endurance instead of the game about dexterity and speed like previous Boffitts have been. It's also just, you just, it was just funny. You leave it on your desk and you can just walk by and hit it, right? Buffy! Yo! Lame! Try again. Like it just, and it insults you. So, uh, <laughs> that was, that really went way out of, you know, an idea of let's just put a bop it on the front of a book. So now this is more important than the book. The book has been delayed a little because I've been so busy on this. Uh, but eventually they would be available either separately or together. You need to put an intermittent read it command in there so people stop bopping it and actually open the book. <laughs> That's it is. Well, there is a TikTok. Uh, there is a TikTok I did when I first had this idea, and it does say, open it, read it, close it, and then the bop it starts talking to me and insulting me. Like, it's because it, I, you know, the guy, Buddy, who does the Bowie's the Bop It, and I work on a lot of stuff. So it starts saying things like, wait, you wrote this? Wait, 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 wait. You wrote this? Well, that's why I'm making this really good video that you just ruined. Why would anyone want to buy your book? Well, it shows how I came up with you and all of the variations and my design philosophy. Boring. And, and there's a whole section on Boppet fans, and if they tell a good Boppet story, it might make it in the book. I'm on the cover, Dan, not you. You know what the best part is? What are you They're doing? Removable. You can't do this to me. You can't do this to me. Maybe someday that'll be, the, you know, it'll become like an Alexa that's really, really uh, insulting to you. I'm very passionate about all the various things you can do with the concept of Bop It. And uh, if you have four more hours, I'll tell you the rest of my ideas. <laughs> this was a really fun episode, a different episode than any other, and probably different than most episodes that will come after it. But I love digging into different business models that creators have made work. And game invention and design is a really unique model. If you want to learn more about Dan, you can find him on TikTok at Boppet Inventor. Follow him there and keep an eye out for his upcoming book and Kickstarter. A link is in the show notes. Thanks to Dan for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making the artwork for the episode. Thanks to Nathan Todd Hunter for mixing the show and Brian Skeel for creating our music. If you like this episode, you can tweet at jklaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week. Universe.